0: Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Five Oaks. Hope you're having a great morning on this uh, lovely fall morning. It's now officially fall, so see what happens when we wait for it to actually be fall. That's a good thing. Uh, So my my answer to the road trip question is: uh, Once upon a time, we were on a road trip, and uh, I am typically the pilot. And, and Jill is the navigator, and, uh, and then she's also the police officer in the car for the kids behind us. And, and uh, so we were driving down the road, and she was occupying them, and I was doing my job on their own. And I, and I decided that I would, you know, I was getting a little sleepy and wanted to pay attention, so I put some, some uh, earphones in to listen to a book on, on tape, which means that I'm now isolated from all of the chaos that's happening in the car. And she didn't even have to say anything. She just started, I just could feel, you know, like you, you feel someone staring at you. And then your eyes do this thing where you kind of look over, like all of a sudden you're really insecure about something. You're trying to figure out what you should be insecure about. And I don't even think she even had to say anything. I just sort of reached up and took my ear pod, the earbuds out and put them down and, and uh, decided to also help with the uh, disciplinary nary. Things in the car. So, uh, but anyway, we're glad you're with us. As I said, my name is John, and I serve as our family and discipleship pastor. If you're new with us, we are so glad that you're here, and we're excited to help you get connected uh, here at Five Oaks. and uh, And so, we look forward to meeting you and uh, and uh, helping you get connected here. A couple quick things you should know: uh, we have sermon application guides that you should have gotten when you got it, when you came in. Uh, if you're new, you should there's a new here folder uh, right by the doors out there. But if you didn't get one, that's okay. Uh, there are sermon application guides on the pedestals right near the back of the room. And uh, there, there's a couple reasons that we use those. One is that it helps you follow along during the sermon. And uh, the second is that it helps you to take what we're going to learn in here today uh, out into the world with you for the rest of the week. And so there's some things in there that you can reflect on and and some places to take some notes and also some questions that you can answer uh, as you go about your week. The thing that's not on there anymore that might be a little perplexing to you is our family discussion questions. And so you might be asking, well, don't you want us to discuss this as a family anymore? Uh, Well, of course we do, but we are in a new season at Five Oaks and we came to the end of a three-year season this last uh, about a month ago While we were journeying through the Bible together for three years, uh, we were using a curriculum that uh, in the kids' ministry, and we chose to preach the same text in here, and we've gone away from that for a couple of reasons. It was a great journey, but we've gone away from that because there's a couple of things that we uh, feel like we, we haven't been able to get to in the story of God and in the Bible. We want to be able to get to those things, and so that's what we're embarking upon this year. And Our kids and students are using a new curriculum called Orange, and it's a phenomenal curriculum that is going to help to bring the story of God to life in very developmentally and age-appropriate ways for them. And so you might say, okay, that's all great, but how do I know what my kids are learning if they're not learning the same thing that we're learning in here? Well, this new thing that we have actually has an app. It's called the Q app, and uh, you can get one of these fancy cards at the, uh, at the Family Resource Center. You download the app and it does a couple of things. It gives you some, some tips and tools on what are my kids going through in this phase of life that they're in? How can I be a part of that and be engaged with where they're at? And uh, if your kids are in kids ministry, there is a video that is the teaching, teaching video that they will see this weekend and they are phenomenal. Our kids love it and uh, have had just a blast uh, participating and, uh, and learning about what's going on and 5 of those kids, and so it's a way for you to, to see what's going on in there. So that's kind of where those resources are for you. Stop back at the resource center, and we'll make sure you got um, what you need. So well, as we dive in here, I don't know what your week has been like, but it's been a, a bit of a fast and furious and crazy one in our in our house. And, uh, and even around here, it seems like everybody in this building has a cold. So I'm on the tail end of a cold. Pastor Henry's on the tail end of a cold. Every, cold. Everybody's got a cold. And on top of that, I managed to get myself into some poison ivy last week. And so if I roll my sleeves up any further, you won't pay attention to the sermon. You're going to be like, gosh, that looks really itchy. That looks bad. So uh, I was talking to somebody about it, and they're like, what are you preaching on this weekend? And I said, well, we're in the book of Esther. And uh, he said, wow, sounds like you should be in the book of Job. <laughs> I was like, that's a church joke. And, I don't, and I'm not even sure if it's a good one. But... Um, But anyway, wherever you are as you come into this weekend, let's just uh, pause our hearts for a moment and our minds, and let's invite God to be here with us as we have the opportunity to be inspired by his word, uh, to take a step on our own faith and journey with him, and just uh, center ourselves as we prepare uh, to listen. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth and the power of your word. By your Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts to hear from you? Remind us that you are a faithful God and that in you alone we find our refuge and our rest and our hope. God, we pray that we would be filled by you and that we might be strengthened to walk with you and be led by you everywhere we go. And so as we uh, take some time out of our weekend here to um, commune with each other and to hear from you, we pray that you would... um, that you would comfort us to let us know that you know what's going on in our lives and in our families and in our world, um, and that you are here with us right now. Amen. So have you ever been so focused on getting what you want that you're willing to do just about anything? I mean, maybe the thing that uh, it led you to manipulate someone close to you in in your life, uh, or it led you to even lie or to cheat Perhaps you've been on the other side of that, and you've been on the other side of someone who is willing to manipulate and lie and cheat to get what they want, and you've, you've, you've been the person that's been impacted by that. Maybe it was a promotion at work, or it was a test at school. Uh, and maybe, again, on the flip side of it, you saw someone at work uh, mess with some numbers or, or do some things that were just not ethical, and uh, it led them to a promotion that they didn't deserve. Uh, Maybe in school, you'd studied really hard for a test, and you you did well, but one of your classmates cheated and did even better. Maybe there's a goal that you've been working toward, and, and it doesn't seem like you can get there without cheating, or without taking advantage of someone that seems to be in your way. Well, typically, the lying and the cheating and the manipulating are not the ends, if you will, in and of themselves. They are the means to the end that we are seeking. Now, once we start down this path, it's a really slippery slope because it, it, it ceases to become about this thing at the end and it, and it, and it starts to, to be about getting rid of the things that are in our way. And when those things happen to be people, it gets even uglier and it gets a lot like evil. We begin to think and reason in a way that identifies decisions and things and people merely as just some obstacles we have to get past to the thing that we seek. Well, this weekend, we're going to look at the expression of, of selfishness and evil as it enters into the, to the book of Esther, into the story that we're reading in the book of Esther. And at first glance, it might seem like something that's kind of stuck in the history of humanity, that it happened, you know, in this historical account of what's happening uh, to, to God's people. And, and, but on further study, we'll discover that this, that this same evil exists in our culture today, in others around us today, and in ourselves today. This is a heavy chapter in the, in the book of Esther as we, as we see that, as we look at the, in the context of the story of God, we discover a God who is still there, even in the midst of the evil that's raging about, but it's a little bit gut-wrenching as we consider how this type of evil still shows its face today. So we are in the third chapter of Esther this weekend, and we're looking at an evil plot to destroy God's people. And the theme of this series that we've been in is called Finding Our Way Back to God. And it's a powerful theme that ought to grab all of us by our hearts, And the reason it ought to grab all of us by our hearts is because whether you consider yourself someone who's been on the journey with God for for a long time, or you're someone who is relatively new to a relationship with God and your journey with Him, or perhaps you're someone that is still considering what a journey with God is going to look like. Wherever you are on your journey, there is this curiosity inside of all of us by the sheer nature that we're humans. There's this curiosity and desire to find our way back to our creator, to make sense of the life that's before us, and to understand the story that we are a part of. And the book of Esther is a, is a really big part of that. The reason that the book of Esther is so powerful today is that it is the telling of God's people as they're in exile. And we might sit back and say, well, okay, well, what is that? that? That doesn't really have anything to do with today. We're not exiled. We, we, you know, we, that's something that happened to God's people back in the, the biblical times. And, uh, and we learned some things from it, sure. But that, what does that have to do with us? Well, we have to recognize that we are, we are God's people in exile. We're not in exile to a different country or, or something like that. We, but we are, we are not living in God's kingdom. We're living in the kingdom of this world. And by the sheer nature of that, we don't live in a culture that's surrounded by or led by a trajectory that it's in line with the story of God, or with the way that God has created us to live. In fact, most of us, even as we call ourselves God's people, struggle day in and day out to be faithful to the things that God has held out to us. And it's important for us to also recognize that as we jump into this, this is not something that where we're going to start pointing our fingers at the culture. It's not for us to start looking around us and start pointing out the different people and things and issues that we think keep our culture and our world from being God's kingdom. Listen carefully to that, that, to that mental narrative. We start to be the ones that, that start to identify people as the reason that we can't live in a culture that is more driven by God's way. And so we're making people a thing that's in the way. Well, even if there's people out there that, and we know that, that most of our culture is not driven by the, the way that God has, has held out for us to live, well, who were they created by? They're created by God. They're God's creation, just like you and me. And we're going to look at, at some of this today as we look at this together But God has sent us into his world as the carriers of his light and of his truth. And it is not for us to to sit off in some corner of the world and wait for Jesus to come back and punish all the bad people. That is not a healthy or correct theology of the church. But it is one that we oftentimes feel like maybe it should be. Because maybe life would feel a little bit easier if we could just sequester ourselves over here and not have to deal with some of the evil and the bad that's around us. But we'll see today that some of that is also in us. We are to be in the culture, but not of the culture. And that brings with it its own pain and its own struggle and its own suffering. Because the trajectory of our culture is not in line with the trajectory that God has held out for us. And so there's some there's some things that we're going to experience in this life, and most of us have, have experienced some of that, that just things don't feel the way they ought to feel or the way that we think they ought to feel. And we wonder, how, how, is this, how is this ever going to come to fruition, especially when it seems like sometimes God is pretty absent or silent? So as we look at the story of Esther, we're going to see some of these realities jump off the page at us. And uh, in this particular chapter, uh, we're, we're looking at just pure evil. And so turn to chapter 3 in the book of Esther. If you want to use one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you, it's going to be on page 494. And uh, it's Esther chapter 3, and we're starting in verse 6. And it starts like this. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the purr, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all of the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all the other people who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hammedatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, said king, the king said to Haman. And do with the people as you please. Then, on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were, secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Disp- dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa, The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. So there's a lot that we could unpack here, and actually it's probably more than we could unpack just in in one sermon. And so let's have just a quick recap of what we just read. So in the previous chapter, you might remember that Haman has been promoted. And it was a bit of a plot twist because also in one of the previous chapters, Mordecai uncovers a plot to assassinate the king and, and, and communicates. It gets word to the king, saves the king's life. And so at, in that moment, we're thinking, this is great. This is great for Mordecai. This is great for God's people. He, he's going to get promoted to be closer to the king, and, and God's people are going to be okay. Well, that's not what happens. And we don't really know why Haman is promoted, but he is promoted. promoted. And in the, in the scenes that follow, we recognize that and we, we learn that Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. He's not going to bow to Haman. And now there's a couple of things culturally that, and historically that, that might lend to this, but we also don't know why Mordecai won't bow. We, we recognize there's a couple of clues in the text that tell us that there's probably something historically going on here that Mordecai's people and Haman's people are enemies and so it might just be that Mordecai's burning with a little bit of frustration that he's trying to save his people and he's trying to, to help them exist in exile and he saves the king's life and thinks he's going to maybe get himself a higher rank so he can keep you know, helping God's people in exile uh, and that doesn't happen. Or maybe it's, it's generations gone by and this hatred between the two cultures is just something that Mordecai just can't bring himself to bow down to Haman, We don't really know what it is. We can just kind of conjecture what is going on. But at any rate, Haman is enraged by this. And he seeks to not only kill Mordecai, but to kill Mordecai's people. Those would be God's people. And there are three evils that we're going to look at that, that come to light in Haman in, in this chapter. And uh, the, the first two are pretty obvious. And the third is a little bit more subtle because it's not found directly in the text. But it's found in our own hearts. So we're going to focus on, on Haman here, and that the first evil that we experience in exile is the evil that exists in a culture that's living contrary to God's kingdom. Evil in our culture. We experience evil in our culture in many ways. And I want to go back to where we started a few minutes ago that this is not an exercise in pointing out who it is that we think is evil, and who it is that we think is bad, and who it is that we think is to blame for our culture not being more in line with God's kingdom. That's not what this is about. We have to manage our expectations for what we think we should expect living in a culture that is not driven by God's kingdom. And so when we, when we look at it through that filter, we ought not be surprised by some of the things that, that we see. But it also means that we don't just sit idly by while while evil and atrocities rage around us as people who follow Christ and seek to live out the truths that God holds out to us we can often feel immense pressure to either change our beliefs or simply just disappear we all feel this type of pressure the pressure to change our beliefs or just to just disappear from the conversation entirely that's precisely what it feels like to live in exile, to feel the pressure of assimilation and at times a growing distance from our God. That is the reality of life in exile, this pressure of assimilation and this distance from God. It's one of the things that's so unique about the book of Esther is that what's happening there feels a lot like our lives at times because God is not mentioned in the story of Esther. Esther. He doesn't have a role. And there are seasons, long seasons sometimes in our lives where we don't have a, a feeling that God is even present. And we don't have a physical manifestation of God. We have his spirit living in our hearts, but it's not as tangible as some of the evils that we see raging around us. And that's what we see here in the book of Esther. As followers of Christ, we should be troubled by, and we are troubled by the trajectory of our culture. And there are probably certain issues that come to your mind as you begin to think about where some of this is rooted. We have to have the wisdom to differentiate between the cultural characters who are creating the lies and those who are caught in them. What I mean by this is that as carriers of God's light, we, we could just cast judgment on, on those who actually need God's love and spirit the most. And so we're just going to blanket the culture around us with judgment and shame and blame, we're going to miss the fact that not everyone is a Haman. Some of them are King Xerxes, and the other people caught up in this terrible plot, and we're going to dive into that a little bit further here. Uh, Mike Cosper is the author of Faith Among the Faithless. It's a book about the book of Esther, and it's one of our primary sources for this series, and It's phenomenal. It is changing my life as I'm reading through it and, and it's bringing things out of the story that I never knew uh, were, were there. And so if you're interested in an extra read uh, as we journey through this series, Faith Among the Faithless by, by Mike Cosper. And uh, he, he says this, there are ideological battles and a fight in the world of ideas where Christians work to unmask and unroot a cultural evil. And there are the more intimate human connections where we confront souls whose minds have been captivated by a lie. And our calling is to compassionately help them reimagine their world. To compassionately help them reimagine their world. Most of the people that we interact with day in and day out are people who are caught up in the lie. We have to remember this as we feel tempted to, to let our beliefs go by the wayside. We don't feel that we can live them out in our culture. And we have to remember this when we feel the temptation to put some blast on Facebook or social media. The world is not going to change because of a Facebook post. It's not. It's not going to change because of Instagram. It's not going to change because of TikTok or any of those other crazy you know, social media sites that half of us don't even know about. It's not going to change that way. It's going to be changed by God's people standing firm and with compassion helping others to reimagine their world according to the story of God. In this story, we see evil carried out by Haman and Xerxes. Haman created the idea and Xerxes is captivated by it and perpetuates it. Both participate in great evil in order to accomplish it. Nazi Germany is a perfect example of a cultural evil that started with one person who who cultivated the evil within. And it was perpetuated by a culture that believed the lie. That the world would be better. Ironically, this is also about the annihilation of the Jewish people, that the world would be better if the Jewish people were exterminated. If they were gone. If they were eliminated. All of them we can be on both ends of the perpetuation of evils in this way. Both of these characters, not them physically, but the, the, what they represent are alive and well today. And it brings us to the second way that we experience evil in exile, and that is that we experience the evil that we see in Haman and, and Xerxes in others. We experience evil in others. And the story of Esther, Haman is the incarnation of pure evil. Pride, power, and envy are all present, and they're driving him toward the evil he is plotting to carry out against God's people. And what makes the evil that we see in Haman different than the evil that we see in Xerxes is found in the way that Haman cultivates his hate into a plot to commit genocide to commit evil. He cultivates it. He doesn't push it down. He fans the flame. And he he strategizes it. And King Xerxes perpetuates the evil in his midst with, with apathy and inaction. What's crazy about this story is that King Xerxes takes off his ring and gives it to Haman and says, do with the people as you please. He doesn't even ask who the people are. And you have, to, you have to believe that if, if, if he knew, if Haman had had to say to him, well, you know, okay, well, these people, remember Mordecai, the guy that saved your life? That's who I'm talking about. I think we should eliminate his people. I find it hard to believe that Xerxes is going to go along with that. Xerxes perpetuates evil because he doesn't ask the question. He doesn't lean in and actually take hold of the power that he has. He just he writes it off and hands his ring off to Haman and says, do with them as you please. We see evil cultivated by Haman and perpetuated by Xerxes, and we don't have to be someone who cultivates evil in order to perpetuate it. We don't have to be someone who cultivates evil to be someone who perpetuates it. In the movie, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, which is a fantastic and just gut-wrenching tragic movie, I would recommend you watching it with your probably middle and high school students, a little younger than that, and it, is a little, it involves some intense conversation and explanation. Uh, so watch it first as the parents before you just watch it together. But um, we watch as two young boys meet on opposite sides of a mysterious fence, One of them is wearing striped pajamas, as this boy points out. We discover that one of the boys, the one on the right, is in a Nazi-controlled Jewish concentration camp. And the other one is playing in his backyard and happens to be the son of the general who is in charge of the camp. And we watch as the boys play together. They play checkers on opposite sides of the fence and they become such dear friends that they actually dig a hole underneath the fence so that they can play together. Totally unaware of the lie that's been believed by the culture around them. For our middle school and high school students who may not be as familiar with some of the evil and the atrocities of the Holocaust, uh, we'll take this to a pop culture reference. It's actually a pretty powerful one. And uh, we're not going to trivialize the horror of the Holocaust uh, by by making this comparison, but it will it will help it come home uh, for them a little bit. And in in a more recent movie, depicting a fictional but powerful story, we meet the demonic character Thanos. And Thanos is the evil character in the Avengers movie Endgame, and he's in a couple of the other movies. I mention this because. The fictional character of, of Thanos is presented as a demonic, evil presence in the universe. And what his plan is, is to wipe out half of the population in the universe. And so in this, in this fictional universe, uh, there are m- hundreds of planets, and all of them have some sort of life form on them. And Thanos is skipping around the universe, uh, killing half of the population on each planet. And the Avengers show up on the scene to try to put a stop uh, to this. He believes that his, his motive behind this is that life will be better for those who are left living. He believes that this type of population control, among other things, will use each of the planet's resources more sustainably. And it will eradicate poverty and starvation and sickness. And as you watch this unfold and you listen to him spell this lie you find yourself reasoning in the way that Thanos is reasoning you find yourself recognizing that well i mean it's not it's not evil without a cause i mean at least he has a purpose that he's trying to you know he's misguided but it, there but there is an end there that is that is good And you're caught up in it. I mean, it's a beautiful way that they weave this plot into the movie that you find yourself recognizing that the evil that Thanos is trying to bring to the universe is okay. Well, it's okay if you're one of the ones who's left alive. But what if you're not? What if you're annihilated by some senseless act of evil? It's eerie to watch because you know that it's a fictional movie. But it's it's eerie to recognize the number of real-life examples that come to mind as we watch the plot unfold. Left unchecked, the evil that we see and experience in exile creeps into our own hearts as a mode of operation rooted in what is around us, rather than by the truth of God that is within us. And this leads us to the third way that we experience evil in our culture. This is one that is not directly in the passage, but the evil that's in Haman, we recognize is also in us. And we experience it in ourselves. Left unchecked, the evil that we see and experience in exile creeps into our hearts as a mode of operation, rooted in what is around us, rather than by the truth of God that is within us, and we might sit back and say, compared to the people around me, I'm good. Like you should see some of the people that I work with. No, not you, not not you, me, you. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a great sermon. People would listen to that, wouldn't they? Uh, we can look around and say, compared to the people that I see around me, I'm good. But that's not how it works. That line of thinking is like rearranging the patio furniture on the Titanic. That ship is going down to the bottom of the ocean, and it doesn't matter what it looks like before it happens. And if we start to compare ourselves to the world around us, that's the mode of operation that's driven by the world, not by the truth that, that, we, that we have in our hearts from God. So, Pastor John, are you calling me evil? Well, none of us will readily admit that we're evil, but when we examine our hearts in light of this story, we recognize that we all have less thans, people or issues or things that we've identified, maybe not up here, but in here, that we've identified as a problem. And if they just weren't here, then X, Y, Z wouldn't happen. The world would be better in this way, this problem would go away. We all do that. And why? Because it's a part of the lie. It's a part of the lie that that was woven way back in the garden to Adam and Eve. The lie that God was holding out on them. That he didn't really love them. And he didn't really want what's best for them. And that in order to get that and to get the most out of this life, they had to take matters into their own hands. And when they did, they broke everything. And we break everything. Oftentimes as Christians, we don't know how or where to engage on the serious issues and atrocities that we see around us. One of the biggest lies that we believe is that the, the best way to do this and in, in order to engage in any of these issues is to pick a side and then dig our heels in. And what happens shortly after that looks a lot like hatred of the other side. And it's the only way that we can justify being that dug in on, on something that we believe to be the way things ought to be. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't passionately with with commitment and conviction, hold firm to our beliefs. But when we hold firm to our beliefs using the pattern of this world, that is not the pattern of the kingdom of God. It's not. That is standing at a distance and launching bombs at one another. On Facebook and and wherever else we can do it. We don't engage with anybody. We just launch our narrative out there and we hold tight to it. And we link arms with the people that, are, that think like us and we, we, we cast judgment and hatred and, and ridicule on the people that don't. I don't see that in the kingdom of God. It reduces us to patterns of living that are just downright unchrist like We start operating the way the world operates. We can convince ourselves that a level of hatred is okay in the face of evil. But it's not. Ever. That's this is the whole way that this whole message comes right down to what's in our our own hearts. God's kingdom mission is to form intimate human connections where we confront souls whose minds have been captivated by a lie. And our calling is to compassionately help them reimagine their world. Who wouldn't want to be on that mission? Who of us could ever say that we haven't needed someone to come into our lives and help us reimagine our world in light of God's story? We all need that every day. Our kids need that. Our spouses need that. Our friends need that. Our neighbors need that. Our classmates need that. Our teammates need that. The world needs carriers of light. To come into their lives to help them reimagine their world in, in light of the story of God. We are sufferers, we are saints, and we are sinners. But if we stay put in any of these three places, we're limited by their end. If we are only sufferers, in exile we become victims if we're only saints we become pharisees if we're only sinners we end up hating ourselves if we're only sufferers we become victims if we're only saints we become pharisees and if we're only sinners we end up hating ourselves we are all three we are sufferers and we are saints and we are sinners Separated from God by our attempt to disobey and take life into our own hands. One of the things that I most loved and hated about the Avengers Endgame movie is that so many times throughout the movie, you can't figure out how the good guys are going to win. There are multiple times when even as you step back from the story and just think about how did they put this plot together? There's no way. They're really, they are, there is no way that they're going to win. They are out of options. It's over. How, how are they going to put this back together? How, it's over. They lost. And there are so many times in our lives where we may feel the same way. And we don't just compare that to a movie. We see the same thing play out in the pages of the story of God that time and time again, this chapter of Esther is one such example, we can't figure out how God is going to win. That this level of evil, this level of strategy, this level of cultivation and perpetuation of an evil plot, God's not even in this story. How is this going to work its way out? And we recognize that we oftentimes feel like that in our own lives. We We are downcast. We are doubtful. We are hurting and we are desperate for God to do something. We feel like we, as God's people, could be wiped out. Exactly like what we think is going to happen in this story. Except that that's not what's going to happen in the story and in our story. Because that's not the way God's story goes. God wins and his kingdom wins, and his followers win. And these events in Esther are in here to, to remind us of that, that even in the face of cultivated evil, God's people prevail because of God and because of God working through them. God doesn't show up in the book of Esther. There are other events that are going to continue to unfold in the way that God's people are going to bring about the salvation and the, the rescue of, of God's people. As we think and step back from the story for a moment, one of the greatest plot twists of all time is that we were the people, and we are the people in God's kingdom, who are not living according to the rules that God has laid out for us. And by rule, I mean relationship and faith. God started with relationship and faith. Long before there was a law, there was relationship and faith. God starts there and he calls us to that and we, we are outside of that. And God could have done what King Xerxes does. He could have wiped his hands of us and sent out an edict for our destruction. But he doesn't. Instead, he comes after us to rescue us. He comes after us to, to help us to reimagine our world. Let's pray together. God, you, you you, tell us that you are with us and that you know what we're experiencing and what we're going through. And God, the story of the events in Esther remind us that you are there even when it seems like you're not. And God, you, you have a story that you've invited us into. And we get to walk with you and not only discover who we are and who we were made to be, but we get to become carriers of your light. We get to go into the lives of those around us, into the world around us, and help it reimagine their world and the world in light of your creation, in light of your love, in light of of your salvation. So God, would you help us to do that, help our faith to explode out of our chest this morning as we are refreshed by the truth of who you are and what that means for who we are. Amen. So how does this story in the book of Esther help us find our way back to God? Well, to feel distant from God in exile is normal to accept that distance and lose our faith is not eminent it helps us find our way back to god because we recognize that the god who created us is not is not going to let us be destroyed he's called us back and he's reconciled us to himself and that's what's so amazing about what we get to do in this next part of our service we get to respond to what we've heard today And we get to respond to the things that are in our hearts that are coming back to the surface as we remember who we are and whose we are. And one of the ways that we do that is through communion. We remember that this isn't just good behavior. This is God's rescue of us. And so when we receive communion, we remember that that Christ died and defeated death so that we wouldn't have to. And that's what communion is all about. And, And so if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to come and remember how you get to be a follower of Christ by receiving communion and remembering his sacrifice for you. Uh, Today, we have communion being served by some of our our small group leaders. And and a quick note, the bread up here is not gluten-free. The bread in the back is. Uh, And so as we move into this response time, I invite you to come and be reminded, celebrate and receive what God has done for you. We have these candle stations that are really their prayer stations off to each side here. And we invite you to light a candle for someone in your life who's far from God. Light a candle for someone in your life whose whose life needs reimagining. They need help reimagining the world in light of the story of God. We have a prayer kneeler in the back corner over there, and you can pray uh, by yourself back there. And we'll have someone from our prayer team in this back corner to pray with you as well. And so respond. And celebrate and remember.